of Jude in the New Testament, the letter of Jude. If you're looking for Jude, it's at the very back of the Bible. If you get to Revelation, just go right before it, one page. Otherwise, you might skip over it. But we've been we've been walking through Jude. We finished last week our verse by verse walk through the book of Jude. But I want to return to the letter one more time to consider a couple of verses that have puzzled readers for centuries. This isn't just something that's a modern phenomenon. This has been going on since very very early on among Christian interpreters, among Christians generally, as they've sought to understand the Bible. And those verses I'm talking about are verse 9 and then verses 14 and 15. So why don't we just go ahead and read those right out of the gate so we kind of have them in our minds. I'm going to actually read verses 8 to 10 and then verses 14 to 16 just so we have a little bit more context for those verses. So Jude, in verse, beginning in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. When the, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. If you go to verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his angel, of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So, obviously, I think most of us are curious about these verses. They're sort of a natural curiosity about them. Biblically speaking, we don't know anything about these incidents. The only way we know them is from Jude itself. There's nothing else in the Bible that would uh, lead us to uh, understand or to know what Jude is referring to here. And he mentions it very matter-of-factly. He mentions it as if his readers already knew what he was talking about. But these verses, what these verses relate is extraordinary. It's mind-boggling. And so I think it's natural to, uh, to ask questions. At the same time, we need to be aware, or to beware, of placing too much emphasis on these things. We don't want our curiosity to overshoot Jude's main point. This is why we spent four weeks going through Jude's letter to unfold, unravel what Jude was talking about, what his main point was, and why he wrote the things that he wrote, what he wanted his readers to understand. And yet I think there is some value in examining these verses more closely. I think that we can illustrate or um, give examples of how we go about interpreting the Scriptures. We can see certain hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutics refers to the process of interpreting Scripture. And as we understand more about how do we interpret Scripture, we can also take from these verses in particular a greater confidence in the inspiration of Scripture, which I think will also deepen our faith in the truthfulness of Scripture. And so today I want to look at each of these verses kind of separately. Okay, So point one will be verse nine, point two will be verses 14 and 15. And I want to consider three things about each, about each of them. Okay, I want us to consider the statement, 
the significance and the source. I think this might be the only time in my eight, nine years of Trinity that I've actually used an alliterated sermon outline. Okay, The statement, the significance, and the source. In other words, the statement. What is, what is happening in the passage? What's happening in the verse? What's Jude telling us? So the significance, number two, why does Jude mention this particular incident? And then third, the source, where did Jude get this information? How, do, how, does, how did he know about this, and where is he drawing this from? So, when we do all that, when we do them separately, we'll spend most of our time on verse 9, because it's a little more complicated. We'll do verse 9, and we'll do verses 14 and 15. The very last thing I want to do then is to come back and see the bigger picture. What do these verses, what do these passages teach us about the inspiration of Scripture, and how do they bolster our confidence in the Bible? So let's begin first with the body of Moses in verse 9, just to remind ourselves what Jude said. He says in verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, so first, the statement, what is happening? What is Jude telling us here? We're told that the archangel Michael contended with the devil over the body of Moses. Now, as they contended, Michael refused to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil, but left the judgment to God. He said that the Lord rebuke you. Now, first, let's identify who the key players are. Who are, who are these people that, that Jude is mentioning? Well, the first one is Michael, the archangel. Michael is mentioned five times in the Bible, three times in the book of Daniel, once in Jude, and once in the book of Revelation. In each appearance, Michael is combating with enemy angels or with Satan. And it appears from Scripture that Michael's chief function is to fight against God's spiritual enemies where the outcome has real implications for God's people. The second figure in verse 9 is the devil. And the word devil in Greek comes from a word that means slander. That's going to be important a little bit later on. So the devil then is a slanderer. It's a slanderer par excellence, the chief slanderer. Slander is just simply something that you say that you mean to be hurtful or damaging to another person, whether that statement is true or not. Sometimes you can say true things as slander. You're saying something truthful, but you're saying it in a way that you want to disparage or, or hurt another person. Well, the devil's name, slanderer, betrays his mission. He is seeking to destroy people by saying damaging things about them. We also know the devil by the name Satan. And Satan is the Hebrew name for the devil. And it means the accuser. And again, that will be important in this passage. In the Old Testament, we see Satan making accusations against righteous men. We know Job is the most famous one in Job chapter 1 and 2. But also the high priest, the, the post-exilic high priest Joshua, after the exile, the high priest Joshua, Satan also made accusations against him. So if we're thinking about this maybe from a legal perspective, which is kind of helpful in this situation, we'll see a little bit later on, Satan is almost like the prosecuting attorney who is marshalling out evidence against a person that would force God, God's hand to bring judgment against the accused. Okay? That's the devil. The final player in this scene is Moses. And really it's not Moses, but it's the body of Moses because Moses, of course, at this point is dead. We know Moses, right? Moses was Israel's leader who led them out of Egypt, who led them through the wilderness for 40 years. But what we also might remember that would be important for this story, this incident here, is at the end of the wilderness wandering, near the end, 
Moses was not allowed to cross the Jordan River into Canaan with the Israelites. He had to die before Israel crossed over. And that's a consequence for a sin he committed at Meribah. God had given Moses specific instructions to provide water for the Israelites. They were thirsty. And instead of striking the rock, which he had done earlier in the wilderness wandering, God instructed Moses to speak to the rock. In speaking to the rock, water would come from the rock and it would provide fresh water for the Israelites. But Moses did not obey the Lord. He actually replicated the previous miracle. He struck the rock and water came forth, but it was not what God intended. And so as a consequence for Moses' sin here, he is not permitted to go into the promised land. In fact, he dies on the east side of the Jordan River. Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6 tell us of his death. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, buried him, Moses, in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Okay, so while Israel is preparing to cross over the Jordan River, invade the land of Canaan, take it as their possession, as God promised, Moses died and God buried him. And because there were no witnesses present, no person knew where Moses was buried. So what Jude records then in verse 9 is that some dispute arose between Michael the archangel and the devil about Moses' body. Which leads us to the question, well, what interest did the devil have in Moses' body? Jude gives us no explanation, right? There's no explanation here as to why the devil would want Moses' body. In fact, if we look at the rest of the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter, we don't have any indication as to why the devil would be interested in Moses' body. In fact, if Jude had not written this statement for us, there would be nothing else in the Bible that would lead us to come to this conclusion. We would never know that the devil was wanting the body of Moses, that he and Michael were disputing over the body. There is, however, a clue that might illuminate what's happening here, and that comes from from Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5 reads this. We'll read it, and then we'll see the parallels from it. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now, just in reading that, you may have noticed some similarities to what we saw in Jude 9. There are at least three. First, we see Satan making an accusation against one of Israel's notable leaders, right? Satan is making an accusation against the, the, the high priest Joshua. Secondly, Satan also makes, an accusation, makes the accusation to the angel of the Lord. So there is some kind of a dispute, there's some kind of argument that's taking place between Satan and the angel of the Lord. And then third, we see that the Lord rebukes Satan in chapter 3, verse 2, with a statement that is similar to Michael's statement. Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. In this case, in Zechariah, it's the Lord who says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. In Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest because his garments are soiled, they are filthy. And of course, for a high priest, that is unacceptable. 
that is improper for one who is the Israelite high priest, who is tasked with interceding, who is tasked with representing God's people to the Lord. He is the one responsible for offering sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. And so with dirty clothes, he cannot function in that capacity. He cannot offer sacrifices. He cannot mediate for their sins. And so, therefore, Israel's sins are not forgiven, and they are worthy of God's judgment. But the Lord rebukes Satan for pointing this out. The Lord rebukes Satan and calls, and the Lord then calls for Joshua to have his clothes changed. They are now to be put on the, the, the garments that are worthy of, of the high priest, the garments that are specified back in Exodus and Leviticus. He is to wear the proper vestments so that he can go about his responsibility of offering sacrifices and in, interceding for the people's sins. And so we see in that act, we see God's gracious atonement, not only of Joshua, but of the people of Israel whom Joshua represents in his capacity as high priest. It's possible that something similar here occurs with Moses. Moses is dead, but Satan would make an act, maybe would make an accusation against Moses by saying that he is not worthy of honor from the Lord. And the honor in this case would probably be his salvation, right? Moses is dead. There's nothing left. There's no other honor for Moses. There's no other glory for Moses except for salvation. And yet we know that Moses sinned against the Lord. And Satan's accusation would be that Moses is worthy of dishonor and condemnation. So in making this accusation, Satan seems to be demanding the body of Moses in order to dishonor and shame him. But Michael contends with the devil for Moses' body, indicating that Satan is not justified to have it. What makes the suggestion even more interesting is that Jude's language presents this as a legal dispute. This is legal language. This, this language of, of contending and disputing is legal language. In other words, this is a case that demands justice. Satan is the prosecuting attorney laying out the charges, and Michael here is coming to Moses' defense, demanding justice in Moses' situation. At issue here is Moses' standing before God. Is Moses righteous and deserving of the honor of eternal life? Or is he unrighteous by the nature of his sin and therefore deserving the shame of eternal condemnation? Michael contends with the devil for the body of Moses, making the counter-argument to Satan's accusation. In some ways here, Jude seems to be drawing from a story that would have taken place obviously before Christ. Michael here is almost functioning in a, in, in a capacity that foreshadows Christ and his mediation of us, of all who are, who are sinful, all who are condemned, and yet who would argue for us that we are, are worthy of honor, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And yet even in this dispute, as they're arguing back and forth, we see that Jude says that Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil. And the word blasphemous there is simply another word for slanderous. It means in its most basic sense, slanderous. A better translation might be that Michael did not presume to pronounce a judgment of slander against the devil. So even though Satan is a slanderer, even though he slandered Moses in this dispute, as they're disputing over his body, Michael did not presume to act as Satan's ultimate judge. He does not render the final verdict against the devil. Judgment belongs to the Lord. It is God's 
prerogative and his alone. Which is why Michael says in verse 9 to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Michael's not going to rebuke the devil. The Lord will rebuke the devil because he is the final judge. He is alone judge. God is judged because he is righteous. And everything that he does is according to his righteousness. He alone possesses sovereign authority to render and execute judgment. And so, though Michael here is contending on Moses' behalf as the Lord's representative in this case, he leaves the responsibility for pronouncing and executing judgment on the devil with the Lord. Just as the Lord did for Joshua, the high priest, when he was accused by Satan. In other words here, Michael knew his place. He respected God's authority and he submitted himself to that authority. He was not going to condemn Satan, although Satan was condemned. That verdict, that judgment belonged to the Lord. Again, that's as best of a reconstruction that we can make here based upon the biblical framework that we have to understand the character of God and the players that we see represented here in the scriptures. So that brings us into the second point, the significance. Why does Jude make this, make mention of this incident? Why does he even bring this into his argument? Again, Jude mentions this obscure incident as an example, as an illustration, right, to make a larger point. And the fact that the details about this incident are so scarce indicates that his readers were familiar with it. But notice in verse 9, the word but, that begins that verse, the word but. The word but indicates here that Jude is setting up a contrast with what he has said in verse 8. And he is indeed contrasting Michael in verse 9 with these people that he mentions in verse 8. In fact, look back at verse 8 so we have our context in mind. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when Michael the archangel, contending with the, body of, uh, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Judas set up a contrast between these people in verse 8 and Michael in verse 9. Now, who are these people? Well, we have to go back earlier in the, in the letter, and we go back to verse 4. We see that these people are what he calls in verse 4, certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, these people are the false teachers. They are the scoffers. They are the troublemakers who are creating doubt among some in the church, and they are those who are leading some astray, leading some into apostasy by calling them to live sensual, immoral lives and denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jude first draws attention to their condemnation back in verse 4. In fact, as he's writing this letter, he calls them in verse 3 to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then he tells them why. Verse 4, because there are these ungodly people who have crept into the church who are denying the grace of God by their sensuality, by their immorality, and who are denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as he is talking about them, the first thing he makes mention about them in verse 4 is their condemnation. He begins to unfold that in verses 5 through 7. That these people, these certain people he mentions in verse 8 and verse 4, 
are worthy of the same kind of condemnation that those who in the Old Testament lived in a similar way, right? The rebellious generation coming out of Egypt, the fallen angels who, who had immoral relations with earthly women, with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those people were all condemned because they disobeyed the Lord. They rejected the Lord's authority. They lived according to their own sensuality. And so Judah's saying, these people, these teachers are like those in verses 5 through 7. In verse 8, then, Jude transitions to expose more who these people are. These people, he says in verse 8, deny the authority of God's word by elevating their dreams. They are making their dreams more authoritative than the word of God. They defile their flesh by their sexual immorality. They reject authority, particularly here, Christ's authority. And he says in verse 8 that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, let's focus on that one for a minute, because that's, that's where there's some more confusion. These false teachers blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, as we've already said, the word blaspheme here means slander, to speak harmfully or disparagingly about another person, or even to make an accusation about another person. These false teachers, these scoffers, are slandering. They are disparaging. They are making accusations about these glorious ones. Okay, now who are these glorious ones? That's a matter of great debate. Let me give you two possibilities. The first possibility is that the glorious ones are God's angels. We know from the scripture that angels bear God's glory to the extent that in the Bible, angels are often mistaken for the Lord himself. As God's messengers, angels represent the Lord and do his work. So if the glorious ones are angels, to blaspheme them would be to disparage and discredit them and to deny their ministry. And while this is a very popular interpretation, I don't think it fits in this context. The second possibility is that the glorious ones are actually fallen angels, or we might call them demons. Those who are in league with Satan to carry out his work of opposing and destroying God's people. There are two reasons why I think this is the better interpretive possibility. The first is Scripture itself. Whenever we're confused about something, the best thing that we can do is to interpret the Scriptures with the Scriptures. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 help, I think, to clarify what Jude is talking about in verses 8 through 10. If you've ever read 2 Peter chapter 2, if you read it alongside of Jude, you notice that they are very, very similar. I mean, almost in places where they're almost the same. They are staggeringly similar. And so we should maybe get some illumination from Peter next to what we see this reference in Jude. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 corresponds closely with Jude, verses 8 through 10. Second Peter 2, 10 to 11 says, Bold and willful, and now Peter is talking about these false teachers, the scoffers, the same ones that Jude is talking about, maybe in a different location or a different setting. But the same idea, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So the word they in Second Peter chapter 2 verse 10 refers to the false teachers whom Jude, or to whom Peter describes as indulging in the lusts of defiling passion and despising authority. That is back earlier in verse 10 of 2 Peter 2.10. It only read the second half of the verse. 
But what Peter says there in 2 Peter 2.10 is exactly the same thing that, that Jude is saying about them in verse 8, that they are those who defile the flesh, they reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Notice that Peter, also in 2 Peter 2, verses 10 and 11, contrasts the glorious ones in 2 Peter 2.10 with angels in 2.11. He says, he says uh, that they, uh, the false teachers, blaspheme the glorious ones on the one hand, whereas angels, on the other hand, though greater in might and power. So there's a contrast here between the glorious ones and the angels. There are two distinct groups. And that would lead us, I think, to believe that the glorious ones are not only not angels, but that they are the opposite of angels. Second thing I think we need to notice from Second Peter 2, verses 10 and 11, is that Jude's example of Michael contending with the devil doesn't make much sense if the false teachers are blaspheming angels. There is something here that Jude wants to illustrate about Michael. That Michael is contending with the devil, and yet Michael refuses to make an accusation. He refuses to pronounce judgment on the devil, saying, the Lord rebuke you. If we take the glorious ones as angels, the illustration seems to fall apart. Now, I will acknowledge that the glorious ones is a puzzling way to describe fallen angels and demons. That's a, that seems to be a little counterintuitive. But I don't think we need to think of them as glorious in the same way that we think of God as glorious, right? But we need to think about the way that God created them. God created these angels in a glorious way. He created them with a certain glory. That they, even though are now fallen, they still possess something of their former glory. And glory here, again, referring to brightness, shyness, um, this, this overwhelming beauty, if you will. There is something still glorious about fallen angels. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it doesn't seem to be too much of a stretch to conclude that fallen angels or demons would similarly disguise themselves by their former glory. All right, so what does it mean then? Let's kind of put all this back together. What does it mean to blaspheme the glorious ones? It seems that the false teachers were pronouncing judgment against the fallen angels. That they were condemning the fallen angels. And though the fallen angels are condemned, the right to condemn them did not belong to the false teachers. That right belonged to the Lord. In other words, Jude is saying that the false teachers have overstepped their boundaries. They sought to render judgment against the demons on their own authority rather than deferring to the Lord and making way for him to be the executor of judgment and punishment. And that's why Jude points to Michael as an example. Michael the archangel knew his place. He did not presume to pronounce the verdict of judgment against Satan and left it to the Lord then to pronounce that judgment because the responsibility rested with the Lord. In verse 10... Jude criticizes the false teachers. He noticed in verse 10, he says, but these people, going back to what he said in verse 8, but these people, he says, blaspheme all that they do not understand. So Jude is critical of the false teachers at this point. They blaspheme what they don't know. In other words, they are not like Michael in this situation. They don't know their place. They don't understand spiritual matters. They don't recognize Christ's authority. They act ignorantly. 
Not only do they lead people astray from the Lord, but they heap judgment upon themselves because they don't know their place. And so Jude is using this verse 9, this story about Moses' body, as a way to exhort the church to contend for the faith because these false teachers need to be stopped. They are unspiritual people who are overstepping their supposed spiritual authority. They must be confronted. They must be challenged. They must be stopped. Now, there's one more question we need to answer about this passage, and that is the source. Where did Jude get this story? What comes from a Jewish writing of the first century, known variously among the church fathers as the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses. And that's a whole rabbit trail you could trace out if you wanted to. I'm not going to go that direction. It is believed, this Assumption of Moses or Testament of Moses, is believed to have been originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic and then translated into Greek. However, there are no extant copies today. It means there's no copies surviving in those languages. The only version of this text that we have that remains to this day is a Latin translation dated to the 6th century. And even then, the manuscript is incomplete. It's missing approximately the last third of the work. And of course, the extant portion, the portion that remains, doesn't preserve Jude's reference. And so that reference to what Jude is referring to here was probably in that last third that nobody has. This, that we have nothing left from ancient history that records this particular incident, except for, in God's providence, he had Jude write it in his letter. Now, the problem that a lot of people encounter with this is, well, why would Jude rely on an extra-biblical source to, or an extra-biblical extra text as his source? Because no ancient Jewish or Christian group ever accepted the assumption of Moses as scriptural. And so what do we make of this, that Jude is using something extra-biblical for his letter? Well, even though Jude here draws his illustration from the assumption of Moses, it doesn't mean that Jude thought that document or that text was scriptural. It may be that Jude was merely using it as an illustration, whether it was a real historical incident or not. In fact, in this part of the world at this time, pseudepigrapha were common in the first century. Pseudepigrapha just means false writing. In other words, pseudepigrapha were accounts written about ancient heroes like Abraham or Joseph or Moses, but were not really written by them or preserved accurate reports about their lives. The assumption of Moses was one such example of pseudepigrapha. It was not written by Moses, and it was written so long after Moses' life that there are questions about the accounts that it preserves about him. So it could be that Jude was simply using this as an illustration from a story that many people knew, that lots of people knew. Maybe in a similar way as if I'm preaching a sermon and I use an illustration from Star Wars or Harry Potter. You would never think that I think those things were real factual occurrences or events, but you know the story well enough that I'm using incidents from those movies or books as a way of kind of illustrating a truthful point. And that may be what's happening here. Jude knew that everybody knew this story. He didn't think it was real, but maybe using it as an illustration. That could be that. I think it's more probable, though, that Jude believes that this account about Michael the devil and Moses' body was indeed true. That it was an accurate portrayal of an historical event that occurred really back in, in time, back in ancient history. And if that is the case, then we can say two things. 
First, even though we would not accept the assumption of Moses or the testament of Moses as inspired scripture, we can accept that God providentially preserved this account about Moses' body in that text. How did God preserve it? It's a mystery to us. That belongs to the Lord. But we trust that by God's providence, he preserved it in this obscure and now lost text. Jude picked it up and wrote it down in the scriptures. Second, we can also say that Jude did not necessarily believe that the assumption of Moses was inspired scripture. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude recognized the truthfulness of this particular incident and appropriated it in his letter to make a point. And we can accept the truthfulness of what Jude wrote even if we or he would reject the source as inspired scripture. Jude here is not doing really anything different than what the Apostle Paul does four times in the New Testament. Paul quotes from secular texts, pagan texts, a hymn to the god Zeus, a Stoic poem, and a secular play. He quotes from all of those to make truthful points. But no one would ever confuse Paul of believing that these texts from which he quoted were actually inspired scripture. And yet he recognized the general truthfulness in them and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit appropriated them to make an argument that his readers could understand. So that's the essence here. It should not be troubled by the fact that Jude uses an extra biblical source. In God's providence, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he recognized its truthfulness and used it as an illustration for a much more important point than simply trying to figure out what's going on with Michael the devil and Moses' body. All right, let's move to the prophecy of Enoch, and we'll be a little bit shorter here. In verses 14 and 15, just to remind ourselves what Jude wrote there in verses 14 and 15, he says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what's happening here? What's, what's the statement we need to make? What's happening? Well, Jude here is preserving a prophecy that derives from Enoch, stating that the Lord will return with 10,000 of his angels to bring judgment upon the ungodly. Jude identifies Enoch in verse 14 as the seventh from Adam. This is a fact that is recorded in Genesis chapter 5. There's a lengthy genealogy. And within that genealogy, the, Moses writes something very peculiar about Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So the passage here tells us something unique about Enoch. He never died. Instead, it says he walked with God, and then God took him to heaven. The writer of Hebrews will give us more information. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that the reason why the Lord translated Enoch that did not allow him to die was because he was a man of extraordinary faith. His faith was such that God rewarded him by translating him directly from this life to the next without suffering death. 
Well, Jude notes that Enoch prophesied about the final judgment. The Lord, whom Jude, I think, understands here to be the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, will return at the end of the age with 10,000 holy ones. That would be a reference there for angels. And in particular, the angels are fighting angels, a host of heavenly warriors. And with these 10,000 angels, he would execute judgment on all the ungodly. Notice here that the basis for judgment is the un, are the ungodly deeds and the ungodly words that ungodly people have committed and spoken against the Lord. That word ungodly or ungodliness appears four times in verse 15 alone. It is a main point of emphasis for Jude. Jude wants his readers to understand that the Lord is coming again, not simply to rescue his people, but also to execute judgment against his enemies. And that judgment will be swift and severe. So what's the significance then of including this in his letter? What's, why does Jude cite this prophecy? Well, in verses 4 to 16, which is the second main section of the letter, Jude has two goals. First, he wants his readers to know that God, long ago, designated the false teachers for eternal condemnation. He said that back in verse 4. Again, in verses 5 through 7, he illustrates that point when he compares the false teachers to three groups who suffered God's judgment for their refusal to submit to his authority. He says that these false teachers are deserving of similar judgment. The second goal that Jude has for verses 4 to 16 is that he wants to know, he wants his readers to know who these false teachers are. And so he describes their character, a very beautiful and poetic and illustrative description of who they are in verses 8 through 13. And it's that description, it's that identification of who these people are that shows why they are worthy of God's condemnation. So having talked first about judgment in verses 4 to 7, and then talking about their identity in verses 8 through 13, in verse 14, Jude returns to the theme of judgment that he left off back at verse 7. Because the false teachers defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones, because they are ignorant of spiritual truth and understand only their instinctual base desires, because they are hidden reefs and waterless clouds and fruitless trees and wild waves and wandering stars, because of all of that, Jude says, these false teachers will suffer God's judgment. And that's where Enoch's prophecy comes into play. It adds the exclamation point to what Jude has previously said in verses 4 to 7. In recounting this prophecy, he affirms that these false teachers will be judged. They are ungodly people and will be judged for their ungodliness. God will judge them with the full measure of his judgment. They have done ungodly things. They have led God's people astray. They have given themselves over to all kinds of immorality and sensuality. They've denied the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They've been insubordinate to his authority. Jude also says that they have spoken ungodly words by their false teaching. So Jude applies here Enoch's prophecy to the false teachers troubling Jude's churches. And we know that because he makes an application himself to the false teachers in verse 16. He says these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So what Enoch speaks about these false teachers, about what Enoch spoke about, uh, about, these, uh, about the judgment coming in verses 14 and 15, Jude says that applies to these false teachers. 
The Lord's coming with his 10,000 angels. He is coming to bring judgment on all the ungodly. And Jude says, these false teachers are the ungodly that Enoch was speaking about. They will suffer because of their ungodliness. Now, Jude tells this to the church for two reasons. First, because Jude has called his readers to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Enoch's prophecy should encourage them to stand against the false teachers. Though it seems that the false teachers have succeeded in their labors, they are condemned and they will be judged. God will vindicate his people and he will deal justly with those who oppose them. The church should not fear, but they should take confidence in God's help and victory. No matter what happens to them as they contend for the faith, these false teachers are on a short leash. The second thing that we need to take away from this is that Jude's citation of Enoch's prophecy functions as a warning also for the church. When tempted to believe the false teachers, believers should hold fast because victory is theirs in Christ. To apostatize is to put oneself in the company with the false teachers and share in their judgment. And that dreadful judgment should cause us to fear the Lord and flee from that promised fate. That leads us then to one final question about Enoch's prophecy, and that is, where did he get this from? What is the source? Again, like verse 9, this is not recorded anywhere in the Bible. And nor is Enoch anywhere in the Bible identified as a prophet or as having uttered a prophecy. Jude is again drawing from a pro- this pro- drawing this prophecy from another pseudepigraphical work popular among Jews during the first century, a text known as First Enoch. First Enoch was originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic in the third century BC, and later translated into Greek and Latin. Though it was widely read among the Jews at that time, it was never accepted as canonical by any Jewish group. Likewise, no Christian group ever accepted First Enoch as inspired scripture. First Enoch claims that when Enoch was taken by God, that he saw the secrets of the mysteries of the universe. He saw the future of the world. He saw the predetermined course of human history. The book assumes to recount them the visions and prophecies as a way for persecuted Jews to endure challenging times by reminding them of God's victory. Again, Jude's quotation of an extra-biblical book doesn't mean that he believed that this book was inspired scripture. Again, like verse 9, he could be using this illustration, this citation as an illustration to make a point because his readers were familiar with it, not because he believed its historical accuracy. But the word prophesied in verse 14 to me indicates that Jude believed that this statement was true, even if he didn't accept the rest of it as authoritative. We can say that God providentially caused this prophecy, whatever its context, to be preserved in First Enoch, and that he providentially led Jude to cite it in his letter. Again, how God did this is a mystery to us. But we believe that when Jude wrote these words, he wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit intended them to be preserved in his word, that they are true words addressing a real situation that Jude's churches faced, and thus are reliable words as we look to God's word for truth and wisdom. That brings then to this final concluding 
thought about the inspiration of Scripture. Let's remind ourselves of what the Scripture itself says about itself and its inspiration. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 and, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when God inspired his word, we believe that he inspired every word as those human authors wrote them. The Holy Spirit was working providentially in them as they wrote. And God used all of their faculties, their intellect, their passion, their language, their education, their culture, everything available to them. God used it to lead them to write his word for us. Because God inspired his word, we have an accurate, reliable, trustworthy Bible that leads us into all truth. We believe that God's word is complete and sufficient. No more needs to be added to it, and nothing that is recorded in there should be removed. And while we agree with Peter that there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand, we also affirm with Paul that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It is for this reason, then, that we hold Scripture in high regard. And not only do we hold it in high regard, but we submit ourselves to it. We submit ourselves to hear it, and to read it, and to study it, and to meditate on it, and to memorize it, so that we might stand in its truth and contend for the faith. Because we hold Scripture in high regard, we must interpret it rightly, and apply it faithfully. It is only when we take seriously the inspiration of Scripture that we will benefit by it and stand firmly and confidently in this evil age. We thank the Lord for His Word, even the difficult passages, even the parts that are hard to understand, even the parts that we don't like. We thank the Lord for His Word, every jot and every tittle. May the dispute about Moses' body and Enoch's prophecy not be mere curiosities or hermeneutical challenges, but may they help us to know God better, may they help us to love God more completely, and may they help us to obey him more fully. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for your word. I am thankful that we have every jot and tittle that you have graciously preserved it for us. And I am thankful for the many people throughout history that have undergone great lengths to preserve it so that it could come down to us. For without it, Lord, we don't know you. We don't know ourselves. We don't know the gospel. We have no wisdom for life. We would never know how to live before you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, even for the difficult passages. Because, Lord, even the more we studied I maybe I'm just speaking for me here, but even the more that I studied them, the more confident I am that this is your truth. Every jot, every tittle 
It is your word to us. And we stand upon it. We believe it. We want to submit ourselves to it, Father. Forgive us when we don't submit ourselves to it. Help us to stand upon it. And Lord, as Jude exhorted the churches of his time and exhorts us now through the centuries, may we contend for the faith by standing upon it. It is powerful, more powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It is the word that goes forth. It is the word that brings truth. It is the word that comes with power that brings salvation to the lost and that brings sanctification to your people. May we never, never, never untether ourselves from this word. May we never, ever, ever be selective about what we read or study in it. For it is all your word for us. It is all your truth for us. It is all that you have given to us that we might stand in this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.